We are continuing our study through the book of Acts. Uh, we are in the last chapter of the book uh, and plan to finish the, our study in Acts next week. Uh, this week we'll be looking at the first 16 verses of chapter 28. In this chapter, we find Paul shipwrecked on the island of Malta in the Mediterranean Sea. So we need to remind ourselves how he got there. We saw back in Acts 21 that when Paul was in Jerusalem after his third missionary journey was over, he was observing a purification rite in the temple. And while he was doing that, some Jews who were in uh, Jerusalem for, for uh, Pentecost recognized him. They started a riot with the intention of killing Paul. They accused Paul of speaking against the Jewish people, of speaking against the law of Moses, and speaking against the temple. Well, the Roman commander rescued Paul from the mob. Paul asked permission for and was granted to, uh, to speak to the mob, and he spoke of the fact that as a Jewish man, he had put his faith in Jesus as the promised Messiah, this Messiah that was promised in the law and the prophets, the Hebrew scriptures. He was not against the Jewish people. He considered himself a Jew. He was not against the temple. He was actually there to worship. This was Paul's first defense of himself, and from chapters 22 through 26, there were five times in all that Paul was called on to defend himself, either in front of a mob, in front of the Jewish leaders, the uh, Sanhedrin, or in front of, of uh, various Roman civil magistrates. Every opportunity he had, he spoke of his faith in Jesus Christ. Every chance he got, he made it clear that he fully believed all that was written in the law and the prophets, just like other committed Jews did. He said he was on trial for the hope of the promise made by God to their fathers. The problem was that he believed the promise really more thoroughly, more strongly than most other Jews did. He believed that Jesus had fulfilled those promises and was in fact that promised Messiah. He was in fact the Christ. He was the hope of salvation. Well, the civil magistrates were convinced that Paul had done nothing worthy of death or imprisonment, but they kept him in prison as a favor to the Jewish leaders. Well, God used their sinful actions to give Paul multiple opportunities to speak of Jesus Christ to various governors and kings and people in authority. Well, since Paul was being treated in such unjust ways, he appealed to have his case heard before Caesar. As a Roman citizen, he had that right. The problem was they had no clear charges to make against Paul. So they struggled with that, but they ended up sending him anyway because he had appealed to Caesar. So in Acts 27, Luke gives us a very lengthy and detailed account of the beginning of Paul's journey by sea to Rome. He spoke much of the difficult weather they had to endure, there was a strong storm known as a northeaster that came upon them as they left the town of Fair Havens on the island of Crete. It blew them far off course. The ship ended up wrecking on the shore of the island of Malta. Paul was actually an experienced traveler and had already been in sh three shipwrecks before this one. Because of this, and because they were already into the month of October, he told them that they, he thought they should not go any further. They should actually winter in fair havens. But the ship's captain and the Roman centurion in charge of Paul decided to go ahead. 
Well, the storm obviously made things very difficult indeed. And at the point when the passengers on board had lost all hope of being saved, Paul spoke to them. He had clearly been praying about the storm. He'd been praying about the ship. He'd been praying about the other passengers and what was to become of them. And he told those on board that an angel of God had appeared to him. Let me read to you what he said. This was in Acts 27, 21 to 26. When they had gone a long time without food, then Paul stood up in their midst and said, Men, you ought to have followed my advice and not to have set sail from Crete and incurred this, this damage and loss. Yet now I urge you to keep up your courage, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. <coughs> for this very night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood before me, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar, and behold, God has granted you all those who are sailing with you. Therefore, keep up your courage, men, for I believe God that it will turn out exactly as I have been told, but we must run aground on a certain island. So Paul reminds them that he was right uh, about it not being wise to continue on this journey they were on, and since he was right then, they need to, need to listen to what he has to say now. The angel had assured Paul that Paul would, in fact, stand before Caesar, he had promised him that earlier and reiterates that promise. He also said that the Lord had granted his request, really, that every passenger, every person on the ship would make it safely through the storm. And he tells Paul that they're going to run aground on an island. Well, Paul calls on the people to be encouraged by these promises. And it's also important to see, really, how Paul spoke of himself as he was giving these words to them. He said that he was a servant of the Lord. He was a servant of the one true God, the God who is sovereign over the earth, the wind, and the seas. This is Paul's creator. This is also Paul's redeemer. So Paul says, I belong to him. He's the one I serve with my life, whether it's in good weather, whether it's in the middle of a northeaster, this threatening the ship I'm on, he is the one that I serve. I belong to him. Well, there were some other people the Lord used to bring about the safety of the passengers. Julius was the centurion who was assigned to get ball to Rome. Um, and he was one of the ones that God used. Uh, the sailors did not believe Paul's promise of safety. And they attempted to lower the lifeboat to go out on their own. Paul warned Julius about what was happening. The Lord intended, he said, to use these sailors to bring the ship to his final resting place at Malta. So these sailors must not be allowed to leave the boat. Well, Julius sent his soldiers to cut the rope of the lifeboat so that the sailors were forced to stay with the ship all the way through to the end. Then, when the ship was breaking up on the beach, the soldiers were preparing to kill Paul and the other prisoners because they were afraid that they might escape. And if their prisoners escaped, they would be held accountable and basically would with their own life. They would, have, they, would, they would be executed themselves if they allowed the prisoners to escape, so they were going to kill them. Julius stopped them and would not let them carry out that plan. So the Lord did bring all 276 passengers safely through the storm. He used Julius, he used the sailors, he used Paul to accomplish that purpose. We're going to be focusing, like I said, on, in, uh, on chapter 28, verses 1 to 16, and there are several things to take note of in these verses as we kind of work our way through them. 
it's clear that God showed himself faithful to Paul. I mean, we see that he opened the ministry. Also, he opened ministry opportunities to him with the people of Malta. And finally, we see the Lord saw to it that Paul finally did safely arrive in Rome. So point number one on your outline is this. God continued to show himself faithful to Paul. I mean, Paul endured so much just in his three missionary journeys through the Roman Empire. He was regularly driven out of cities by people who did not want to hear what he had to say, didn't want to hear the gospel. He was regularly beaten, thrown into prison. He was once stoned and left for dead. He had Jewish leaders go after him in virtually every city and force him to leave their synagogues. He had Gentile idol worshipers stir up riots against him. And through it all, the Lord showed himself faithful to Paul. The Lord told Paul that when he was converted, he would suffer many things in this ministry, and he did. But the Lord was with him through it all. Yes, he came out with a lot of scars, but the Lord sustained his life through that time. As we've already noted, when he returned to Jerusalem after his third missionary journey, he was immediately the subject of a riot. People tried to kill him, and in the midst of the five times that he was called on to defend himself, we know that there were at least two conspiracies to see Paul murdered. They failed, but they were intending to kill him. The Jewish leaders hated him. The Roman magistrates held him prisoner, even though there was no charges against him. But the Lord was faithful to him through it all. In Acts 27, we saw that the Lord promised safe passage in the midst of a terrible storm. And then in the final verse of that chapter, and in the first verse of Acts 28, we are clearly told this next point in our outline. The Lord brought Paul and all the passengers of the ship safely to Malta, just as he promised he would. Much emphasis was given in Acts 27 to the severity of the storm and the great danger that everybody was in. But there's also a lot of emphasis given to God's promise to spare the lives of every person on that ship. Chapter 27 ends with this simple yet very triumphant statement. It says this, And so it happened that all were brought safely to land. I mean, that really truly was a miracle. The people on board had lost all hope of survival. The experienced sailors did not think survival was possible for everyone, so they sought to take the lifeboat and try to at least save themselves. When the ship stuck fast on the beach of Malta, the waves beat from uh, two different angles to the point that it was breaking the ship into pieces. And at that point, people were swimming in the storm, trying to make it to land. Those who couldn't swim were finding pieces of wood to float on, and you just something of a raft to help them make it. And so the fact that all 276 people made it safely really was a miracle. But more to the point, it was God keeping his promise. He was proving that he could be trusted. He was proving that when you hold fast to his promises, he can be trusted and he will be faithful to the end. Acts 21.1 reiterates this truth. It says, again, when they had been brought safely through. Well, why were they brought safely through? Because God promised that they would be. Because God was actively at work to ensure that what he promised would be a reality for every passenger on that ship. 
it's just a reminder here to us, we can and we need to trust God's promises. Now, we don't have really specific promises about safety from a specific storm or a specific trip that we're taking, but our Lord tells us things like, He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. Is that true? Can He be trusted to keep that promise? Our Lord promises this. He says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Is that promise true? Can God be trusted to keep that promise? Our Lord promises He will cause all things, all things to work together for good to those who love Him to those who are called according to his purpose. Is that promise true? Can God be considered faithful to keep that promise? Well, yes, yes, yes to all of those. It's a challenge sometimes, and every one of us doubt those times. We can find ourselves in the middle of situations and realize we're not really trusting that promise, one of those promises. But God is faithful to keep those promises, just as faithful as he was to keep that promise to get all those uh, 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 passengers along with Paul to safety through that storm. But the promise keeping really isn't over yet because the next point we see is this. The Lord used the natives of Malta, used the natives of Malta to provide care for Paul, for Paul and those who were stranded. Verse 2, um, well, let me start at reading verse 1 uh, and 2. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. So it says the natives just showed them an extraordinary kindness. In other words, it was exemplary. It was over and beyond what would have been expected. They brought them in out of the rain, they were all soaking wet, obviously, from being in the rain and also being in the water. Built a fire because it was still raining and it was cold. Well, this is a continuing aspect of the promise of safety that God made. Because if they had made it to shore and then they were all murdered as soon as they got there, that would not be a true fulfillment of God's promise. But the Lord made sure that did not happen. He inclined the Maltese natives to be welcoming and friendly to these people and show them what is called here an extraordinary kindness. That's the way God fulfills his promises. That's the way he shows himself faithful. God's work in our lives is not done in a half-hearted way, just enough just to get by. He is the God who loves to lavish his grace on his people, an unmeasured grace that he lavishes on his people. Therefore, we can always trust him to be faithful, no matter what trials or challenges we might be facing at the time. Next, we see this. The Lord opened to Paul a door to ministry to the people of Malta. So look at verses 3 to 6. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. 
And though he has been saved through the, from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. However, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. But they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god. So Paul was helping to gather wood for the fire. Um, and while he was doing that, of course, he got close to the flame. And it apparent that the, a, a viper, a, a snake of sorts, uh, came out of the fire. Apparently, it had been laying among the sticks. And, um, and as they were thrown on the fire, in response to the pain of the flames, it just kind of propelled itself out of the fire and lashed onto Paul's hand uh, and bit him. Well, the natives knew about this kind of snake, this viper, and knew that its bite would cause a person to swell up and uh, oftentimes would kill them. Paul seems to just calmly shake the snake off of his hand and just keep on about what he was doing. When they saw this happen to Paul, they watched for a while to see what else was going to happen. And what they expected to happen, what they surely had seen happen to other people, didn't happen to Paul. Nothing happened to Paul. It didn't seem like it affected him in any way. And they were just amazed at this. Well, it's interesting to note some things here then. The response of the Maltese natives to the viper attack on Paul reveals a number of natural insights, a number of natural insights they had, though they did not know the scriptures. For one thing, they obviously knew and believed that murder was wrong. These were Gentiles, may well have never known the Ten Commandments, but they knew that murder was wrong, even though they probably never heard, you shall not murder. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 2. In those chapters, uh, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3 of Romans, he was giving proof that people who were Jewish were sinners. I mean, they knew the law. They had the Ten Commandments, but like everyone else, they regularly fell short of what those laws required. But then he deals with what about the Gentiles? Romans, as you know, is probably just a couple of pages to your right. Well, here's what he says in Romans 2, 14 to, uh, chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. For when the Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, and that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So Paul says that when Gentiles who don't have the law available to them, but they seek to do, they seek to act consistently with what the law says, then that gives evidence that the work of the law has been written on their hearts. It's their conscience showing them the things that the Ten Commandments say should not be done and what should be done, even if they've never heard of them. Well, we see that in these people of Malta. Though they did not probably have access to the Ten Commandments, they give evidence that they knew right from wrong. Specifically, they knew murder was wrong. I mean, apparently, they apparently knew Paul was a prisoner. Maybe he was chained to a soldier. Um, good, it's a good chance that the prisoners were kept separate from the other passengers, uh, probably some soldiers even guarding, watching over them. And they assumed here Paul must have been guilty of murder because they understood again that the just punishment when someone murders is that they themselves should be put to death. 
they should be executed. And since the bite of the viper was usually deadly, Paul must be guilty of murder. Well, so is the idea he was able to make it through that storm, uh, and, but he could not escape death because he deserved it. So these believers understood another, another basic truth here, that those who do wrong should be punished for that wrong. They instinctively recognized the need for justice. Now, they were right about that. But there were limits about what they understood. First, they seemed to believe that evil actions are always punished in this life. Well, that's not necessarily true. They may be punished in this life, and a lot of times they are to some degree. But they most certainly will be punished in eternity in, the, in judgment. In fact, it's often true that people who act in evil ways prosper in this life. They get away with lying and theft and bullying and even murder. If you remember Job's situation, that's one of the things Job struggled to understand. It was so frustrating to him that he knew people who lived evil lives and regularly got away with it and everything was going fine with them. We can all relate to that frustration. But we also know that since God is just, they will be held accountable in eternity, if not before. The natives also misunderstood something else. They were thinking that any time something bad happened to a person, like being bit by a viper, that must mean that they're being punished for their sin because something bad happened to them. Well, that's not true. Again, going back to Job, that's what Job's friends believed. Since Job was suffering, they assumed he must have committed some terrible sins because his suffering was so bad. Well, they were wrong. Good and godly people often suffer in life. Matter of fact, Paul is a perfect example of that. We also see here an example of how easily people can be deceived. I mean, when the natives saw that Paul didn't die... They go from thinking he was a murderer that needed to be put to death to thinking he's a god that we should worship. That's a pretty big change in how you're viewing someone. It's the idea here that really popular opinion can be easily swayed. And we see that too. We know that that's true. And it's especially true among people who have a worldview that is not informed by the scriptures. So there were things the Maltese natives understood from the fact that the work of the law was written on their hearts. But because they didn't have access to the scriptures, to the word of God, their understanding was incomplete. Like everyone else, they needed Christ. They needed Christ. The next thing we see here is this. The Lord used Paul in significant ways among the people as he took personal interest in them. He took a personal interest in them. Look at verses 7 to 10. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him, and after he had prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. They also honored us with many marks of respect, and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all that we needed. 
So we see here that the hospitality of the people of Malta continues through this man known as Publius. He was apparently, he was obviously a wealthy man on the island. He also seemed to be some, uh, an official of some sort who had a position in the government. But on top of that, he was a generous man. I mean, he granted them a place to stay for three days. Now, who this included as far as was involved in this hospitality, we don't know for sure. It's, it's obviously at least connected with Paul and probably those connected with him. It may be that Publius actually provided a place to sleep for the passengers uh, in general until permanent lodging could be figured out on where they were going to stay for the next three months or so. Well, this connection enabled Paul to get to know Publius some, and he saw that his father was quite sick. He was in bed. He was described as having recurrent fever, dysentery. Paul visited with him. He prayed with him. He laid his hands on him, and God healed the man through Paul. Well, at this point, then word got out on the small island about what had happened, and so all over the island, people who had various diseases were coming to Paul, and the Lord cured them through Paul. This all goes back to Paul's willingness to get to know Publius, to get involved with him and his father, and then uh, to reach out to them. The islanders then show their gratitude in very practical ways. It says they show honor and respect to them, people that were strangers to them just a few days earlier. And also when they left after three months to continue their journey, they provided all kinds of various necessities uh, that they would need uh, on their voyage. So it turned out to be a time of really just great ministry for, for Paul uh, to, a, to a place and among a people that he never would have been, had never would have visited otherwise. But it was through this shipwreck that the Lord brought him to be in Malta. One more thing I want to I note here. The people of Malta, and I'm talking about in the present, the people of Malta consider Paul to be the founder of Christianity on their island. It's interesting that Luke doesn't say anything about Paul preaching and sharing the gospel with these people. But it's just hard to imagine that didn't happen. I mean, that's what he did. And especially with all these people getting healed through him, is he just going to not mention Christ at all? That doesn't make I mean, What I think happened here is uh, if you kind of think back to how kind of Luke's style, his writing style. He has a tendency to take certain things, certain events, and give a lot of detail to those events. And then the things coming right after that, he hits those very briefly. That seems to be what's happening here. He's just given a lot of detail, well, for, to the shipwreck specifically. But even all these, uh, these five different discourses, these this time defenses that Paul gave, just a lot of detail for the last really five, six chapters. Well, now he's getting he's more brief. So um, I think that we can safely assume that Paul spoke of the need for faith in Jesus Christ in connection with these healings that were taking place when people all over the island. As you know, we did it this morning, praying for New Zealand. We pray for a different country uh, every Sunday in our worship service. Well, it was just a couple months ago that we prayed for Malta. And when you look at the religious information about that island, you find that they themselves trace their Christian roots back to this visit from Paul. 
That's where they trace the beginning of Christianity on their island back to. A large percentage consider themselves Christians now. Now, of course, unfortunately, much of that seems to be maybe much tradition and maybe not as much heart with it, which happens in a lot of places. But the main thing I want to point out is they consider the Christian faith and their nation to have begun with Paul. Well, that, since that's the case, that, that there, is, there is no way that Paul could, uh, Paul could see the Lord performing healings through him and not call the people to repent of their sin and talk to them about who Christ was and about their faith in Christ. So I believe that did happen. Well, after three months, they continued their trip to Rome. So look at verses 11 to 13. At the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship which had wintered at the island and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. After we put in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Puteoli. Well, this was apparently a pretty normal and uneventful trip actually then to Italy. Uh, Luke says they stopped in Syracuse. From there, they go to Regium. From there, they uh, end up landing in Puteoli. From there, they're going to actually walk to the city of Rome. Luke does give one interesting detail. He doesn't make any comment about it. He just gives the detail. He said that the ship they took had the twin brothers for its figurehead at the, at the front there of the ship. The twin brothers, uh, and some of your versions may actually have their names there, were called Castor and Pollux. They were considered, of course, this is superstition, but they were considered to be the sons of Zeus. They were the gods of navigation and the guardians of, the, of uh, sailors. Luke makes no comment about this at all. He just points it out. But there seems to be an obvious comparison here with the fact that it was the one true God who clearly delivered every single passenger safely through that horrible shipwreck and storm earlier, and they could not attribute that to a superstitious belief um, in these two gods. But he just gives us that information that kind of lets it sit there and moves on. Okay, look now at verses 14 to 16. There we found, in Puteoli, there we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And the brethren when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Apias and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. So here we see our third main point, and that's this. The Lord uses, uh, the Lord used believers, especially from the church in Rome, to encourage Paul. He used believers, especially from Rome, to encourage him. First, we see that believers, there were believers in the town of Puteoli. And they asked Paul and those with him to stay there with them for seven days. Uh, so Julius, the centurion, again, who was the one insured with getting him to Rome, obviously was okay with this. Maybe he has some connections there as well. We don't know. That's not explained to us. But uh, the idea of seven days I th obviously means that they wanted to, they wanted Paul and Luke and uh, Aristarchus was with them, for sure, to be there with them on the Lord's day, to worship with them. There were probably, you would assume, maybe not a lot of Christians in this town. Uh, 
We don't know how they came to even know that Paul was there, but somehow God providentially caused that to take place. And this invitation to fellowship, to worship, no doubt, I'm sure, was encouraging to Paul and the believers with him. And when you think about it, it had likely been a long time since Paul had an opportunity to be in a worship service with fellow Christians like this. Well, after that, we see that the believers from the church in Rome did something that meant a lot to Paul as well. So next, we see believers from the church in Rome walked many miles on the Appian Way to welcome and escort Paul to Rome from Puteoli. The Appian Way really is, was the oldest and most famous of the roads leading to Rome. The believers at Rome had somehow heard that Paul was in Puteoli and was coming to Rome. Again, don't know how. God providentially got that word. Maybe the uh, believers from Puteoli got the word to them. We don't know exactly how that happened, but they, under, they realized it. The market of Apius, which is described here, was about 43 miles from Rome. The three ends that's mentioned here was about 30 miles from Rome. And either the believers met Paul as he came to their city, as they were on their walk from Puteoli to Rome, or they came from their city walking toward Puteoli and kind of met them on the way. We don't know exactly what the details are there. But either way, their intention was to welcome Paul and escort him to Rome. And they were willing to walk many miles to do that. Now, Paul had never been to Rome, but he already had connections with that church. Several things to note here. First, Paul was thankful to God for this church. He was thankful to God for this church. Before he ever went to the church, he was thankful for them because he had heard so much about them. He wrote his letter to the Romans three to five years earlier. And here's what he said, again, maybe a page or two to your right, on Romans uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 8, a couple verses here. Paul says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit and the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making request, if perhaps, now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. So he says their faith in the Lord was well known. Paul says all over the known world, people are aware of the strong faith of those who were in the Roman church. He says also that he prayed for them regularly. Over in chapter 16, verse 19 of Romans, he writes there, the report of your obedience has reached all. And Paul greatly rejoiced over that. Well, we see in Acts 28, 15, that when he saw these believers coming to meet him, he thanked God. I'm sure he thanked them as well for personally making that effort for coming. But first, he thanked God. He was so thankful for their faith in the Lord, obviously. He was thankful for their concern for him to come and, and meet with him, to, to, make, to make him feel welcome. He was thankful that the gospel, I'm sure, had been so successful in this key city. And he also knew that God was the one who was responsible for all of that. Well, these believers and all that they represented were evidence that God was at work. So Paul was thankful to God for them. Second, we see this. 
the Lord had given Paul a strong desire to visit the Roman church. When Paul thanked the Lord for the church in Rome, uh, in, in Romans 1, he immediately followed it up by saying this. I'm going to start in verse uh, 10 of chapter 1. Always make, always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last by the will of God I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, so that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you, while among you, each of us, by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you, and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. So he had a longing to see these Christians in Rome. He wanted to be an encouragement to them. He wanted to be encouraged by them. Over in chapter 15, Paul again reiterates his desire to visit the church in Rome. This was something that was very important to him. I mean, the Lord had given him a vision for and had given him a ministry to the Gentile world. Well, Rome was the capital city of the Gentile world. So, of course, he wanted to visit and have a personal connection with the believers in the city of Rome. And as we also know, Paul had promised Paul that he would make it to Rome. No matter how many obstacles were in his way, he was going to make it. And I'm sure his heart was just overjoyed when these believers made this special effort to come and welcome him to the city that he had such a longing to visit and people that, especially the church there. Finally, we also know that the Lord had already used Paul to strengthen and encourage the Roman church. That's because of the letter that he wrote to them. The letter to the Romans is really Paul's most thorough and detailed presentation of his teaching. These are things that he would share in person with other churches, but since he had never been to Rome, he basically started from scratch and shared the gospel in a most thorough manner. And the result is, when you think about the, the letter to Romans, it's sometimes called like just a theological masterpiece. And so I have no doubt that the believers of the church gave a lot of attention to all that Paul had written to them. So they were already had been greatly strengthened and encouraged by Paul, though they had never met him personally. But we also see in Acts 28.15 this, that the Lord used the believers from the church in Rome to encourage Paul. So Luke tells us that when Paul saw these brethren, he thanked God and he took courage. It had been a long journey. Paul had endured many things in his time from Jerusalem to Caesarea to Malta and now to Rome. Meeting these Christians on the road to Rome was an indication that he was almost there. He didn't know what he was going to face when he met with Caesar it had the potential to go very badly, but he's encouraged right now. We all go through difficult and challenging times. We all have things that are hard. Sometimes it's kind of just the regular challenges of, of life. Sometimes it's a special season of testing. And, of course, we all need the Lord and have to trust him to be able to endure through those times. But fellow Christians can be a big help to us in going through those kind, of, those kind of situations. Every one of us, I'm sure, have testimonies of how other people have been so important to us at certain times in our life because of certain things we were going through and how we needed 
them, their friendship, their words, their prayers, their example, whatever. I mean, other people are just so important for that. So Paul was encouraged by what these Christians did to show their love and concern and appreciation for him. But there's more to the story. Paul makes a comment, a very interesting comment, in the last letter he wrote, which is 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy 4, 16 through 18, he says this, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished, and that all the Gentiles might hear, and I was rescued out of the Lord out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed, and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So he talks about here about his first defense. Now there's different ideas about what he's exactly talking about there. His first defense could be referring to this appearance before Caesar that was going to be taking, you know, soon after Acts 28, when we don't, aren't told about the details of that. That could be it. It seems a little more likely that he may be referring to a time that he was arrested later, after this first time, that a later time that he was arrested and had to, had to appear before Caesar, and maybe talking about the first time he actually had to meet with uh, Caesar, who was Nero at that time. And this later appearance before Caesar would end up resulting in his execution. Well, Paul appreciated the encouragement that he received here in Acts 28. But he points out that if this defense before Caesar, which was in Rome, he said in 2 Timothy, no one stood with him. Now, the idea here is not they weren't allowed to stand. You get the impression they could, there were things they could have done, but no one did it. It's a sad fact that there are times when people who have stood with you earlier are not willing to stand with you later. It happened to Paul. It happens to, it happens often, which is sad. It's really sad. But even if that's true, that some people who stood with us earlier were not willing to stand with us later, even if that's true, the reality for Paul, because Paul says this, he emphasizes this, and this is in 2 Timothy. He says, but the Lord stood with me. The Lord stood with me and strengthened me. And he says, I'm asking the Lord not to hold this to our account. I don't, we, again, we don't know what the circumstances were that caused the fact that no one stood with him at this time. But he says, the Lord stood with him. That's always the reality no matter what your circumstances are, and thank God for fellow Christians. Ultimately, the most important thing that we stand with is that, is that we believe is that the Lord is the one who stands with us. The Lord is there to see us through and to strengthen us, and we thank the Lord that he is always faithful to his children. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that, again, just the, just the things that you did for Paul, through Paul, and just this, uh, these, these examples. We just want to thank you, especially for your faithfulness. Uh, we just see it in such practical ways in this story. 
faithfulness through the storm, faithfulness as they were uh, on the island of Malta for three months, faithfulness as they actually make their way ultimately all the way to Rome. Thank you for those examples of the fact that you keep your promises and you are just as faithful to us as you were to Paul. Help us to recognize that you always stand with us. You are always the one who strengthens us. Help us to trust you in that, no matter what the circumstances might be. Help us to trust your promises and trust your presence. If you're one who doesn't have a relationship with Christ, that I would invite you to receive Christ as your Savior. A prayer like this will be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I realize that I don't measure up. And I need that unmeasured grace in my life because I don't deserve to be your child. But thank you that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners like me. And I want to receive Jesus as my Savior. I want my life to be lived with Jesus Christ as my Lord. If you want to talk in more detail about that, about that commitment, you can make a note on tear-off or those who are watching us online can reach out to us through the website.